Hi, and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Nada Khan, and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. Thanks for taking the time today to listen to this podcast. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Jessica Watson, who is a GP and an NIHR academic clinical lecturer in general practice based at the Centre for Academic Primary Care at the University of Bristol. We're here to discuss the paper she's written alongside colleagues titled The Y-Test Study, a UK-wide audit using the Primary Care Academic Collaborative to explore the reasons for primary care testing. So thanks, Jess, for joining us here today. And first things first, this is a great opportunity for you to tell us a bit more about the Primary Care Academic Collaborative, or PACT, which I believe you chair. So what is PACT and how can others get involved? Thank you. Great. Yes, um, PACT, so Primary Care Academic Collaborative, is a new um, collaborative of primary care clinicians, so that's GPs, GP trainees, medical students, uh, and all allied health professionals working in primary care. And the aim is to try and um, improve access to primary care research. Lots of people are interested in research, but don't know how to get started. They maybe want to dip a toe and find out a bit more about getting involved in research. So we aim to achieve that through the collaborative and allow people to take part in high quality research studies um, at a national level. Um, But I think what's different about the PACT studies and the PACT model is that participants will collect data within their own practice, we'll pull that at a national level, but then we can give back to those PACS members by providing them with benchmarked data about their own practice, which can be really useful for stimulating quality improvement locally, as well as research at the national level. And I guess that's particularly relevant here because this paper covers something that GPs do every day, that is order blood tests. But as you point out in the paper, there's really wide variation in testing rates between practices with some potentially unnecessary testing. But tell us a bit more about the reasons why you did this study and and the background to it. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I mean, as you say, this is something that we all come across every day in our clinical practice. And that's kind of what drove me to this is, is sitting at the end of a long day with a long list of pathology results in my inbox and often finding myself thinking, why was this test done in the first place? What what am I supposed to do with this? Um, And, um, you know, looking at the literature, um, I was particularly interested in a paper by Jack O'Sullivan um, in the BMJ, which had shown a threefold increase in the rates of testing in UK primary care between 2000 and 2015. So that, for me, was really kind of shocking. And what I, what that drove me to think is, why is this happening? Why are we doing the tests? If we want to optimise our use of tests, that's the first thing that I think we need to kind of understand. Um, And the challenge there is, of course, we can't easily get that information because we don't tend to code our reasons for testing when we're, when we're, ordering blood tests. So that's where kind of using this novel method, using a collaborative method with clinicians taking part uh, was so, so important to this study. Yeah. So you used PACT members to do the data collection here. So what information were they recording from the practices? Yeah, so PACS members were all clinicians working in their own practice, and they were asked to audit 50 sets of recent blood tests that were done. We provided an automated search to allow them to do that easily and uh, data collection tools um, to help. Um, And they were basically looking at the, the medical records of these 50 patients to extract data on why the tests were done, 
Um, and then what actions were taken as a consequence of testing or not? So what the outcomes of testing were? Um, and then kind of the final question, which you alluded to earlier, which was which was much more exploratory, but we thought, because we've got clinicians here, we can ask these kind of questions. So we asked, in your clinical opinion, were those tests necessary or not? So, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, um, do you think those tests were needed? And so that was actually exploratory, but one of the very interesting parts of this study, I think. Mm, so really interesting. So each member went through 50 records and yep. the sample included 57 practices and results from just over two and a half thousand patients. But tell us about some of your main findings. So what tests were most commonly performed and why? So in terms of reasons for testing, um, the commonest reason, which is unsurprising, was symptoms or, or symptom stroke diagnosis, um, which was 43% of the sample overall. Um, monitoring for existing disease was a big chunk, so that was 30%, and monitoring medication, another 10%. So in total, kind of monitoring was around 40%, almost as much as, as the symptomatic testing. Um, and, and, and a range of other things. There was a, a, a proportion of tests done to follow up previous abnormalities. Um, the number of tests that were actually requested at the direct request of patients was very small, only 1.5%. Um, although, of course, that might underestimate those tests where it's a, a small contributory factor. And who is ordering these tests? Because for monitoring purposes, I imagine that potentially that might be the role of a practice nurse or were receptionists ordering tests if patients had booked in at the front desk? Absolutely. So we looked and it, that's another interesting finding, perhaps unsurprisingly, because we've now got such multidisciplinary teams in primary care, that was reflected in the testing. And in fact, it was only around half of tests that were requested by GPs themselves or a lot were requested by trainees, by nurse practitioners, and, and a fair proportion, I think it was around 20%, I better check, <laughs> that were requested based on, on practice protocols. So that's where there wasn't necessarily a clinician who was requesting it, but they were perhaps for chronic disease monitoring, um, ticking the, the sort of protocolized tests that would be requested for that patient group. Yeah, I wondered about the these sort of protocols. And I know that on some systems, for instance, we use ICE in our practice, we have test groups for certain conditions. So did you look at that at all, the use of these sort of test groups? Yeah, so we didn't sort of subcategorize in that category that was protocolized testing to what level those protocols were occurring, whether that was at the practice level or whether that was across the CCG uh, or, or via the lab with those kind of test categories. Um, I think that's a really interesting area for future exploration. What we found was there's a big variation there between different practices. And we, like I said, we shared a practice report with participants in the studies and, and got really positive feedback and, and really importantly got lots of feedback that patient that PACT members had shared that report and had made changes. And one of the changes that came up was saying, oh, well, we don't have protocols. We're noticing everyone else is using protocols. Perhaps that's something that we should introduce. Yeah, absolutely. Because I suppose protocols can sometimes reduce the number of unnecessary tests by cutting out specific test options as well. Yeah, and I think increasingly, again, with our sort of multidisciplinary teams, I think sometimes um, it might be particularly helpful for our allied health professionals to have more protocolized testing to work towards, and also for that standardization across the different members of the teams um, that we're working with. And so other, 
other sort of PACT members fed back that they were looking at protocols, not just for chronic disease monitoring, but for things like tiredness testing. So which tests should we as a practice be requesting for patients who are tired all the time? Mm, interesting. And we talked about this question at the end. So for the clinicians doing the data collection, you asked them, was this test necessary? And what was the general consensus or what were the findings here? Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating. We found that um, around seventy, around three quarters of PACT members said, yes, those tests were necessary. Um, but that meant that in a quarter of cases, the tests were either partially or fully unnecessary when reviewed kind of retrospectively. Interestingly, that does kind of fit with so previous literature that I'd read, which was all based on kind of expert opinion was kind of guesstimating that one in four tests may be unnecessary. But I think this is the first time that we've actually really been able to measure that. Mm. We'll make a start at measuring it. And thinking about these potentially unnecessary tests, were there any specific tests that were coming up time and time again as being deemed potentially unnecessary? Good question. Well, I've got to <laughs> watch this space. I've got a master's <laughs> student who I'm hoping is going to do some further analysis on that specific question, actually, to try and look at predictors of potentially unnecessary testing and try and unpick that question a bit more. I think we're probably going to, I think that will be interesting to do some further analyses, um, but also we probably need to do some further research to really, I'm reluctant to put too much weight on on this data, because as I said, it's exploratory. This is one PACT member's opinion versus another clinician. I don't think we can clearly say that the PACT member is right and the other GP was wrong. What we can say is that there's variation between clinicians in terms of opinions of which tests are needed. And I think probably further research is needed to try and pin this down. So there's been lots has been done looking at potentially inappropriate prescribing and coming up with definitions, the stop start criteria, all those sorts of things. Can we try and emulate that when it comes to testing and look at coming up with consensus definitions of what what a potentially unnecessary test is? Hmm. So it's a matter of watch this space for future future work. Watch this space, but I'm really interested to explore that question further. Yeah. Um, so were there any other key findings to highlight coming out of this specific work? I mean, I think another key finding was that, you know, overall 6.2% of tests led to a diagnosis, a new diagnosis or confirmation of a diagnosis, which I don't think would surprise GPs, but I suspect is probably would be surprising to our patients. So I think, you know, a lot of the time we are using a test to try and, you know, potentially offer a, a sort of enter a consultation or offer a solution to a problem for a patient, and they might put a lot of weight on that test. But if we're not sharing the fact that actually a lot of those tests will come back either normal or without any clear diagnosis, then it can store up problems and frustrations for patients in the long term. So I think being a bit open about that fact that actually a, a relatively small proportion of the tests are leading to clear diagnoses. Um, and I guess another key finding was that around half, uh, it's linked to the same thing in terms of outcomes of testing, around half didn't lead to any change in management for the patients, mm -hmm. um, which I think, again, unsurprising probably for us as GPs, but is perhaps something that we're not sharing as openly as we could with our patients. And I think increasing openness is probably needed, particularly given that we're now moving towards patients having online access to their test results. And they're increasingly going to be looking at that and asking more questions of us, I think. 
Yeah, and this links, I suppose, back to some of the previous research that you've published here in the BJGP, looking at how GPs discuss tests and test results with patients as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that research interviewing patients was a real eye opener for me. But I think just emphasizes the fact that there is work for us all to try and do to try and improve how we communicate and share our decision making and and make sure patients are, are on the same page as us and understand why we're doing those tests so that they can understand those results. Okay, so I think that's one clear take home message for clinicians in terms of communication with patients about the rationale for tests. But do you have any other key messages or a take home message here for those working in primary care as a result of this project? Yeah, I think, um, as you say, communication and uh, with patients is a key aspect. Um, I think reflecting on our own practice and on our practice within our within our GP practices on the use of tests and and trying to think when we click those boxes, is that test necessary or not, um, is another kind of message really. And as I say, there's not clear cut, it's it's not black and white, it's shades of grey, isn't it? How necessary, how unnecessary are those tests? Um, But I think it's always easy to just keep clicking a few extra boxes on that pathology form when you've kind of opened up your your test request. Um, And so discussing as teams, perhaps, and perhaps also with our trainees and our allied health professionals who may um, not have the experience or training in testing in primary care, talking to them about why they're requesting tests and and looking at their pathology inboxes in tutorials as well, I think is something that we can all take away and perhaps spend some time reflecting on in our clinical practice. Mm, that's really helpful. Some really concrete take-home messages, I think, for GPs and trainees and their trainers as well. So thank you. Um, one thing I wanted to just end with was if people are interested in getting involved with PACT, how would they go about doing so? Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the first study you're using PACT, as I said, and it's really opening up new opportunities for us to do, to build on the blueprint of this study and to develop future studies. And we're well underway with planning the next study for next year. Um, and we're really keen to get new members of PACT to sign up and we'll keep them informed then via our mailing list. Um, so to do that, you just go to our website, which is gppact.org. Um, and there's a join PACT link on the website. If you provide your email address and some details, we'll send you monthly newsletters and you'll be kept up to date about all the future projects. Um, And yeah, if anyone wants to contact me, um, I'm, I'm happy to be emailed as well. Great. Well, thanks very much, Jess. I think that's been a really helpful summary of this paper and a good introduction to PACT as well for people who might be interested in getting involved. So thanks very much for your time. Great. Thank you. And thank you all very much for your time here and for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research article can be found on bjgp.org and the show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. We talked a bit about Jess's previous work in this area, including a paper titled, I guess I'll wait to hear, which is all about communication of blood test results in primary care, which was published in the October 2022 issue of the BJGP, if you wanted to go back and take a look. And as just mentioned, the website for the PACT collaborative is gppact.org and the email address, in case you're interested in learning more, is gppact at gmail.com. Sounds like there's a lot more to come from this team looking at 
how testing is used in primary care. So we will look forward to hearing about this in the future. Thanks again for your time and for listening. Bye.